Hello, this is Ann Johnson, the lead pastor of New Legacy Linden. I am so glad that you're joining us today as we continue through the book of Matthew. Right now, we know that things are super wonky with the quarantine. So throughout the week, we have different things for people in your family. So on Tuesday afternoons, we have Good News Club for your kiddos. So on Wednesday nights, we have Youth Hangout with Tanner. Thursday nights, we have our takeaway time where we hop on a church Zoom call at 7.30. And just the last announcement that I have is just for tithes and offerings. If New Legacy Linden is your home church, then uh, we encourage you to continue to give or start giving uh, by going to www.newlegacylinden.com. Um, go to the support page and hit give. So that is a way to do it. And if you um, thank you for giving. Let me pray before I continue in the message. Jesus, I thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness that is apparent and evident even in the hardest of times. Lord, I pray that as I teach your word that I would not get in the way of what you want to speak to the people who are listening. I pray, God, that you would continue to open our eyes to see the opportunities in our neighborhoods to love well and to shine brightly for the kingdom of God. I pray that you would help us be people of peace and voices of hope in such a confusing and difficult season. I thank you for the community of New Legacy Linden. I thank you for the way that um, they love our family, but also for the incredible way that we get to love them. I pray that you would bless them and keep them, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's hop right into Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus said to his, then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would like, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the man of God, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So first, let's walk through Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter looked at him, took him aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Satan, to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
The first thing I want to point out is that the rejection and death of the Messiah is necessary. That this all alludes to these Old Testament prophecies that the Savior, the Messiah, the one who was to come, will need to be rejected at the hands of the people and be killed as the final sacrifice, as the final atonement for the sins of humanity, that this death is necessary for the life to come from there. And this is what Jesus is saying, that he knows that this time will come. He knows that this is going to happen. And he tells his disciples plainly, He's no longer speaking in parables. He is straight up saying, this is what you can expect, that I will be killed at the hands of the religious, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the people who know the word of God, the people who claim to know God, they will be the ones who kill me. And he says it straight up. And they still don't believe him. That it would be at the hands of the religious that Jesus will be brought to the cross. First brought before Pontius Pilate and then to the cross. The hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, or the chief priests in some translations, were the ones who killed Jesus. They were the ones who instigated. They were the ones that demanded the murder of the Messiah. Those who knew God or claimed to know God would be the one who kills God's son, Jesus. Death by the religious. And that stood out to me. That it was the people who claimed to know God were the ones who would send Jesus to die an excruciating death on the cross. And here's the thing, I am not surprised, I am not shocked, because in my, minute, in my experience as a minister of the gospel, but also as a Christian, it is the religious people, the people who claim to know God, the people who know the Bible in, in, and, in and out, the ones who can cite scriptures left and right, sometimes those are the people who are the most blinded and cannot see the move of God, or how God is using the most ridiculous situations and the most foolish circumstances to use his people. That Jesus was killed by the religious. And I know that in our context now in the 21st century, there is, there is such a negative connotation with this idea and this label of religious people. Even within the church, we can look and read in the scriptures like we don't want to be like them, them, the religious people of Jesus's day. But the religious spirit that bound those people back then is still the religious spirit that binds people today where God is moving and they will not see what he is doing, because what he's doing, what God is doing is outside the confines and imagination of what they think God is able to do. But the reality is if we think about it, let's break it down for a bit. The term religious people, we 
are religious people because Christianity is a religion. And if we would identify as Christians, then we would have we would fall under the category of religious people because of what we identify in our faith, what we say we believe. And as Christians, we proclaim and teach that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he came to earth fully God, fully man to live, die and resurrect so that we could be restored in righteous relationship with God, our creator. We are religious people. And I want to slowly strip away that negative connotation because we would identify as religious people. And even in this context. But here's the thing, church. The religious people of Jesus' day were the ones that instigated instigated and demanded the murder of our Lord and Savior. That they were the ones that were persecuting others. And I think if we step back, we can recognize that religious and non-religious people persecute others. But the thing is that God calls the religious people, the people who say that they follow Christ as Lord and Savior, up to be the ones that free the oppressed, to stand up and care for the widows and orphans, to be the voices of hope and the people of peace, that the religious people, us, are not called to be like the ones in Jesus' day. We are called to live a different life. We are called to stand up and speak against injustice and be voices of righteousness, to be examples of righteousness as people who follow Christ. So I ask you, what kind of religious person are you in your neighborhoods, to your neighbors, and in circle of influences? What kind of person, what kind of religious person are you in your neighborhoods and in your circle of influences? Are you known as the hypocritical Christian who judges those around you instead of helping those around you? Are you known as the critical spirit who makes people feel like they are not good enough? Or are you the kind of religious person in your neighborhood, in your work, in your circle of influence? who is known to speak against injustice, to care practically for the widows and the orphans, to show Christ in all that you do. What kind of person, what kind of religious person are you? What kind of religious person am I? What kind of religious people are we? Are we the kind that killed Christ? Are we the kind that shows Christ? Are we the kind of people who want to shut down, be critical, and stifle the move of God in ways we can't even imagine? Are we the ones who will live as empty vessels being used by the Spirit of God to do the work of God? What kind of religious people are we? 
You see, before I moved to Linden, I knew about Linden. I knew about our blocks and blocks of that has churches everywhere. I knew of the culture that people know Linden as, and now that I live here, I love it here. I love Linden, I love our city, and I am believing that God will bring revival that overflows into our city, out into Whatcom County, and out into the rest of the nation, that we would be a people who would show Christ, that we would be a people who will do the work of God in ways that we cannot even fathom, because we would just be willing to be used by God. I am believing that for our cities, but I think it would be critical and necessary for us to think right now, what kind of religious people are we? Are we the ones who killed Christ? The ones like them? Or are we the ones who show Christ in all that we do? You see, the interesting thing is that Jesus was not surprised that he would go to the cross. He was not surprised at the cost it would go to the cross. The cost of the cross was not a surprise to Jesus. And later in Matthew, he will continue to allude in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, Matthew 28, 18, 19, that there would be death and resurrection on the third day. Jesus was not surprised. That that is what would be necessary to fulfill the work that he was given. The pains and hardship of the cross and his ministry and the doubting and the people that he was constantly trying to minister to and the voices against him. Those were part, those were all part of the cost that would lead to the cross. The nails in his wrist and in his feet, the stab wound on his side, the being beaten beyond recognition were part of the cost of the cross, but he was not surprised. So why are we? Because that is the path that Jesus took to be obedient to the father and the work that he was called to do. The cost of following him should not surprise us. That the same rejection that Christ faced could be and is the same rejection that we could face. And I know we live in America where we are not being murdered and martyred for our faith, but that is happening to our the body of Christ around the world. That there are nations where it is not safe to be a Christian. Where you cannot just go to your local Christian bookstore and order a Bible or have Amazon send one to you. The rejection and murder of Christ was not a surprise to him who went there. It should not be a surprise to us that these things that we see in Jesus' life, his obedience, his righteousness, his willingness to shake up the status quo for the sake of the kingdom, are examples of what we should be like. The cost of following him should not surprise us, but when we do not preach the entirety of the gospel to lay down our lives and to follow Christ, 
we do not preach the cost that it involves, it's like we are bamboozling people into just seeing the shiny, pretty side of Christianity. It is like showing people the beautiful exterior, that linden lawn, and then inviting them inside, and it's a hot, hot mess. That it is hard. That the entirety of the gospel, when we preach it, means that there is suffering and there is joy. That there is grief and there is hope. But when we only preach the good parts, people are then surprised when we talk about the cost of following Christ. He knew it. He spoke plainly. Jesus spoke plainly to his disciples about what he would endure, that he would be killed at the hand of the religious. But on the third day, he would rise. And then Peter tries to shut him down. Hard pass, Jesus. Don't say those things. That's never going to happen to you. So Jesus counter-rebukes Peter after Peter pulls him aside in confidentiality to be like, no, Jesus, this isn't going to happen to you. Jesus has to counter-rebuke him publicly because what Peter was saying was wrong. That Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross, but Jesus knew he would. He knew that his resurrect, his rejection, and his death was necessary. Remember a couple verses ago when Martha taught last week? Peter was the rock. The church will be built on. And now we see him as a stumbling block that he was being used by Satan to distract and de-distract from what was going to happen. So Jesus publicly corrects Peter with severe language. Get behind me, Satan. Hot day. Peter went from the rock in which the church will be built on to get behind me, Satan. But it was used to emphasize that Jesus is disassociating himself from Peter's ideology. That he was disassociating himself from what Peter was saying. Because what Peter was saying wasn't true. That in that moment, this person that was going to be used by God to build the church is the same person being used by Satan. To derail what must happen. So if Jesus does not publicly correct him. That false ideology that the rejection and the death was not necessary to the work of Jesus on earth. That lie could have infiltrated the rest of the group. That they would not then understand that death and rejection. That death to self. That sacrifice and obedience that the things that Jesus would walk into could be for them too. Could be for us too. So I see this interchange between Peter and Jesus in three ways. The first way 
It was a look into the human condition. Peter wanted the gains of the kingdom without the pain that it takes for the kingdom. So it was a look into the human condition. It is also an example to us. That we could easily be used by God in one moment, but if we are not intentionally abiding and aligning ourselves in the word of God with the spirit of God, we can easily be used by Satan as a tool to spread false ideology. So let this be an example to us. And the third part of that interchange, Jesus loves us so much that he would correct us. You see, I have a six and seven year old. You guys know them if you go to our church. And I tell them, I wouldn't correct you if I didn't love you. That addressing the things in their life is a way that I love them because I care enough to address it. That while we might read this rebuke, get behind me, Satan. As a harsh rebuke, because it was, we also need to acknowledge that Jesus loves Peter so much that he would correct him. Would we take correction from God in our lives, not just as harsh rebuke, but also acknowledgement that God loves us? That the pruning of the things and the sins of our lives is not to harm us, but it's to help us grow and thrive. So this interchange right here, you see, it shows us that human condition. Peter wanted gain without pain. We want kingdom blessing without kingdom work. That Peter is also an example to us here because we have to recognize that if we are not aligning and abiding in the spirit of God, the word of God and worship and prayer, we can easily go from being used by God to being used by Satan to spread lies. Last one. Jesus loves us so much that he would correct us. So then Jesus turns to the rest of the disciples and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. To give up your way, to take up your cross and to follow me. These seem like fairly simple instructions, especially as I was typing this out. But here's the thing. To give up our way is to give up control of how we want our life to play out. And trust that God would lead our way. To take up our cross is a choice to die to self and live life in Christ. To follow him, to follow Christ 
is a life of tension, of disobedience and obedience every day with opportunities of whether or not we will follow Christ in our family, in our relationships, in our finances, in our community, in our church community, in our workplace, everything. We are given opportunities if we will follow him there. So let's first talk about what is our way? Because Jesus says to the disciples, you must give up your own way. See, the thing is that Jesus is not going to force you to follow him. You get to choose if you will give up your own way, not your neighbor's way, not your mama's way, but your way. The way that you've always dreamed your life would be, maybe you encountered Christ and it has radically changed. The way that you always saw yourself using your finances, maybe God is asking you to use it another way. The way that you might be leading your family that is not honoring to Christ, maybe God is asking you to lead it his way. So what is our way? Our way is easily the building of our own kingdom, of possessions, power, and privilege. That our way, your way or the highway, my way or the highway, this stubbornness to not ask the Lord on how he would like us to live this life that Christ died for. So what does it mean to take up the cross? The cross for each of us. To take up our cross is to take up the things that God has called us to and to bear those things well, knowing that there is a purpose. I see the image of Jesus taking his own cross and carrying it to the place where they will hang him. And I believe he does it with kingdom in mind, purpose in mind. That there is a reason for that burden and that pain. That the tool of execution becomes the symbol of resurrection. That to take up our cross is to take up the death of self in exchange for the life in Christ. To take up the cross is to proclaim the gospel even when it is unpopular and uncomfortable. To take up our cross is to be willing to give up our ideas and plans for our lives in exchange for the plans of God. To take up our cross is to be used as vessels for the kingdom of God. Because what pours in must pour out. To take up our cross means the heart to die to our preferences, our privileges, our possessions. That Jesus was not the first or the last person to get killed on the cross. It was a common Roman way of death. And it was twofold. The first one, an excruciating, painful death. You would think the cross being nailed to it was the relief because before that they would beat you. But the second fold is that your body would hang out of hang outside of the city walls as a reminder to not break the Roman law or that could be you too. Your body was used as a reminder of warning to not get out of line or it could be you too. So we are called to take up our cross. But can I ask, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? 
Because I think in our context in 21st century and in 21st century discipleship, that could look real different. Because for some, Jesus is not Lord and Savior. He's just Savior. He's what some people joke as fire insurance. That if I say Jesus is my Savior, then I won't go to hell. But the thing is that Jesus has to be Lord and Savior. If that if your life was a ship, he is the captain, steering it whichever way he desires, because he knows the course. That if he if you were a lump of clay on a pottery wheel, he was the potter. He was the one crafting, molding, making something out of your life. Jesus is not the backup plan. He is the plan. That when we profess Christ as Lord and Savior, it needs to affect every single part of our lives. We do not get to compartmentalize our faith in Christ. That is not what it is supposed to be. That when we are to follow him, it should overflow into every part of our life. Because in verses 25 through 28, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there, will, there, will, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How will you lose your life? It's not death. Because death is not final in the scheme of eternity. We lose our life when we lose our way in pursuit of the things that fade away. That kingdom work is the work that matters. We could put our hands to all these things, but do they matter? And are you, and am I saying that your job doesn't matter? I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you are in the places that you are in for the purpose of the gospel. That you might be getting a paycheck from your work. But you are also getting opportunities to live and love like Christ to those around you. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, there's so much kingdom work there. That every moment you have a chance to correct and give grace and to share the gospel with your child, that is kingdom work. We are getting chances in our neighborhoods right now to show God's goodness. To show joy abundantly. That we are not there just to live there and occupy physical space. We are there to claim spiritual space. We are there to bring life and life abundantly through Christ. How will we lose our life, but how will we gain it? How will we live our life in a way that proclaims the goodness of God? How will we live our life and interact in every arena to proclaim the gospel? Because what a shame a life would be if it was lost in pursuit of things that don't actually matter. 
So Jesus continues and says, he will come back with the angels and he will judge those according to what they have done by their deeds, their actions, not just what we say, not just what we post on social social media as keyboard warriors, but what we actually do because it is too easy to say that we stand against injustice, but actually standing up and speaking up, matching our words and our action against injustice requires more. Why? Because actions require more risk. It is too easy to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. But can I just tell you that people pay attention when we actually live like Christ is Lord and Savior? Because we will be judged not just for our words, but for our actions. The world is tired of hypocrites. They're tired of people, religious people, who say that they follow Christ, but ignore the orphans and the widows. What the Bible would say is true religion. They're tired of people who condemn others and persecute others. And do these things, but say we are people of peace and voices of hope. The world can spot hypocrites so easily and they are tired. That our actions must align with our words and our words must align with our actions. That the testimony of our life flows from when these two things are aligning together. That we cannot just be people who say we believe in righteousness, but we must act to ensure righteousness. That we are not just people who say we believe in freedom, but not act upon it. That we cannot just be people who say we believe that God created all people, men and women, in his image, but not stand up when our brothers and sisters and communities are being treated violently and unfairly. And I have wept over this message about the counting, the cost of the cross. The reason it's being going to be recorded and published on Wednesday afternoon instead of Tuesday, like I usually do, is because yesterday I could barely write because my heart was broken as I read the news and I read what was going on in our nation, the divisiveness, the hatred, the anger. And God is calling his people to be people of peace. And I'm not saying be a peacekeeper, like trying not to rock the boat. I'm saying peacemaker, being willing to engage in uncomfortable discussion about what it looks like for what we say we believe, which is we are created in a Mago day in the image of God. And not resting until all people who are created in the image of God are treated equally. The world is tired of hypocrites because the church is where they see it. We are made for something more and we are settling for significantly less. We are made for greater kingdom work, but we will settle for less because in our human condition, we want the gain without the pain. And that is not following Christ. Following Christ, there is risk death to self 
but there is great, great joy. Because it awakens when we live in according to the word of God, when we follow Christ, when we live with kingdom vision, kingdom purpose, kingdom mission, our soul awakens to what it was always meant to do. Which is to be in every space, bringing hope, sharing Christ, and making disciples. Whether church buildings are closed, deemed essential or non-essential, the church is the people. And we have not stopped gathering, maybe physically, but you are the voice of hope and the person of peace to your neighbors, to your coworkers. That just because we are not gathered in one place on a day of a week at a certain time should not mean that the gospel is not proclaimed in every opportunity that we have. The church is very much alive, very much moving because God is still using us. So the questions that I want to challenge you with and ask you. After this sermon, after yourself reading the scripture, what kind of religious person are you? Is Christ Lord and Savior or just Savior? What does it mean for you to follow Christ? Do your actions align with your words? And here's the example that always comes to mind. If I told you I loved my husband, but if you saw me treat him terribly, would you believe that I really loved him? If we say that Christ is Lord and Savior, then shouldn't our life align? And here's the thing, it is not about perfection, but it is about repentance and process and growth. And the last takeaway question, how are you really doing? How are you really doing? Let me pray. Jesus, you are so, so good. You are so, so gracious. And there are more times than not, Lord, where I feel like I dropped the ball because I wasn't willing to pay the price of what it meant to actually follow you. God, I pray that you would help me see the own rebellion in my own heart that prevents me from giving up my way, taking up my cross, and following you. God, give us wisdom on how to live well in this season for the kingdom of God. Open our eyes to see opportunities to preach the gospel and show people who you are by how we love them. We thank you, God. You are so good. In Jesus' name, amen.